We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country, give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. My country, my damn country, give me my Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friend the Russian is here. This is We the Aliens Podcast. And I'm your host, Sasha Kapustina. Thank you for tuning in. Thanksgiving is upon us. I hope you're staying safe. I hope you're keeping grandma safe. Do you really need to endanger her to fight with your uncle about who won the election? I mean, come on. Anyway, today on the show, AJ Feliciano. He is a first-generation American-born son of immigrants from the Dominican Republic. A few months ago, AJ became the CEO of the Roost Podcast Network that is part of the Warner Media-owned Rooster Teeth Productions. The Roost is a video-centric podcast network with more than 70 shows and tens of millions of monthly downloads. It was really fun to talk shop with AJ. We touched on how big players coming into the industry changes how independent podcasters will have to think of their work and their business. And he also shared some of his thinking behind running a podcast network. So there's some insights there. We also talked about race representation and diversity in the media, which comes up in almost every episode. But this time we talked specifically about dynamics in the workplace. And something interesting came up that kind of confirmed some of my thinking. We talked about how in the U.S. your name can reflect on your chances in the workforce. It's something that never occurred to me, which, of course, proves how naive I am, until I actually started looking for interns for one of my projects and caught myself thinking while looking at somebody's resume, Oh, this person's name sounds foreign. Will I speak enough English? And I caught myself right there, frankly shocked, and realized that this is exactly how others look at my own resume. So, you know, name is such a personal thing, and there's so many different aspects of how people think about what name to carry and I share part of my personal story with it and you know some of it um and I'm curious how how you guys think about all that stuff have you changed your name or contemplated doing that or maybe you have some name or migration related family history so here's a new thing that we're gonna do I have set up a google voice so you can call at 213-973-3813 and I'll put the number in the show notes and I'd love to hear from you and maybe I can play some of your stories on air and now here's my chat with AJ why do you think of people moving to Austin you know I think it's these secondary markets right it's like if you're not New York LA Chicago San Francisco because the cost of living is so high, they're looking at these secondary markets like Austin, Denver, Charlotte, or uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, or Nashville, Tennessee, or, you know, places like that. It's just because it's just a cool place. And, you know, t uh, people are typically a little bit on the younger side. 
you can sort of have your cake and eat it too. It's like, you know, you get, it's really the only markets where you get to both, you know, settle down, have a family, be able to send your kids to public school without any worry, just have a house and be able to save money and all this different stuff. But now these secondary markets are really popping. Austin in particular, you know, Texas is pretty business friendly and there's just a ton of tech moving to Austin, a ton of it. Like Google just leaves the tallest building in Austin that's still under construction. Apple's second headquarters in, is in North Austin. Um, you know, Samsung is here. GM is here. It's like there's so much going on in Austin that it's just mind boggling. And then even podcasters are moving to Austin. So Joe Rogan just moved out here. Um, he's over by Lake Travis here. You know, several comedians have moved out here. My company, Rooster Teeth, has been in Austin for about 17 years. But a lot of media companies, production companies are setting up shop here because they're just like, well, in this new world, you know, why do we have to be tied to any one particular city? They can just as easily attract talent in Austin. And if you have a production in LA or somewhere else, just hop on a flight, be out there, do your small stint and come right back home. Yeah. Wow. It's a cool city to live in. You're doing a great pitch for, for your city. Thank you. I'm still, I'm still in L.A., but there's less and less reasons. You were, you were mentioning that your friends were leaving L.A. and New York and moving to Austin. I have a lot of immigrant friends, and a lot of them are leaving the country and going back to their home countries. Really? Yeah. Do you think it's changed anything in any way? Is it because of the political climate or is it because, um, like, what's the main reason for it? Well, mostly COVID, mostly the the uncertainty. I mean, it's hard to fight your way in with all the limitations that most immigrants have, like visas and all that stuff, you know, and now that the job market has been shaken up and it's just scarier and less, you know, less enticing to keep fighting. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's certainly, there's a number of different sort of factors in play here. And I mean, let's be frank, <laughs> you know, the last four years haven't exactly been very friendly to immigrants. Um, the, no, but the they survived those. Yeah. And then it's the COVID that, that broke it. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know, they might come back now that Joe is in. Yeah, I think so. And like, you know, we're seeing these vaccines, you know, a few of them are just showing really promising results. I think that we're going to get out of this in, you know, early spring. I'm, I'm hopeful. I mean, I'm generally optimistic to begin with, but like, I just, I think that we are on a better path. And I think that, you know, people that look like us are well on our way to continue to, um, you know, our quality of life is going to get better, um, you know, with all things COVID and all things job market and all things, you know, um, just the political climate and all the rhetoric out there. So I think I'm hopeful. Right. Me too. I mean, I think everyone, you know, the last week has been way more hopeful than the previous four years, for sure. That's true. <laughs> very, very true. Well, let's uh, let's get into your story. Okay. Where did your family come here from and when? Yeah. So um, my parents are from the Dominican Republic. They came to the United States, I think, in either 1983, I want to say, 83 or 84. Yeah. So this was like, this was the Reagan years. This is back when Ronald Reagan basically opened up the floodgates and say, immigrants are welcome here, which is so ironic, so ironic that a Republican president was all about in migration um, and, you know, given all things today. But um, yeah, my parents, they were young. They were in their early 20s, early to mid 20s, and they were just looking for other opportunity. They took the gamble. So they got on a one-way flight. They went to New York. And, and you know, I might get a little emotional while talking about it because it's, a, it's sort of a story that replays in my head over and over again and sort of 
gives me perspective on any problems that I have. I always remember like not just the prototypical somebody else has it worse, but rather somebody who, you know, I love dearly went through so much trouble just so that I can be afforded every opportunity that I have now. And so I can't squander it. I can't squander it and I need to push. And so my parents, when they first got to New York, they were absolutely penniless. My dad's um, mother, my grandmother, was uh, you know living um, here in a very small apartment, and she accepted them for a little bit. But um, I think they had a little bit of a squabble, and um, they ended up leaving. And my parents, they worked at a gas station, both pumping gas, um, and they lived in the attic of that gas station. And my mother would tell me stories about how you know, they would take turns doing 12 hour shifts. And she you know, while my dad was doing the night shift, she was basically upstairs in the attic fighting rats. She would, you know, this is the 80s in New York. The New York just looked awful back then. You know, rat infestations everywhere, graffiti everywhere. It was not a great decade for that city. Can you imagine just like being in that situation and thinking like, where's the light at the end of this tunnel? Where do we go next, right? She said that she didn't go a night without bawling her eyes out because, you know, here's somebody that came from, you know, well-off middle-class family. She came to the U.S. thinking that it was this, you know, glorious thing that, you know, immigrants were welcome with open arms and here they found themselves in this situation. And what they did next was, you know, a close friend who they talk about all the time saying that that pulled them out of that situation and brought them into their apartment and said, you can't be living like this. You know, um, here's warm food. Here's a place to uh, sort of settle down as, you know, you go find yourself a new job. And um, they really helped them up. Uh, help them out in a big way. My parents then found out um, uh, through some close friends that, hey, maybe New York is not working out. Try Miami. You know, Miami is uh, tons of immigrants and, uh, you know, mostly Cuban Americans, but also, you know, uh, immigrants from various other Latin American countries are coming in. And so they went down to Miami, they got themselves a small apartment. Um, and, um, my mother was actually able to use her, she had a degree in chemistry. Like my mother was top of her class in high, in, in secondary school, in college, she was top of her class valedictorian and she was able to land a great job at a plant down in Miami almost immediately. And you know, shortly thereafter, they raised enough money where they were able to uh, buy their own home. And, you know, while they were in the apartment, though, that's when I came around and the family grew and we just kept doing better and better and better. Eventually, we all moved to South Jersey, right out of Philadelphia. And that, I think, is where the immigrant story starts for me. Because living in Miami and living in border towns along Texas or Arizona or, you know, California, I tell people that it's not the same living in some of these cities because the diversity, when everybody is sort of cut from the same cloth or everyone is sort of, you know, just Latino, it's hard to sort of see what other Latinos are going through that are living in other parts of the country where they're not, it, there isn't as much diversity. They're really seen as aliens, right? And so I think living in South Jersey was the first time for me that I saw what it was like being one of few Latinos. It, it was just like going into, I got there when I was starting middle school and high school. And my first language when I was in Miami was Spanish. I just wanna make that very clear. It was Spanish, everything was Spanish. When you're living in Miami, everything is Spanish. When you're living in Miami, if you don't know a lick of English, you can go your entire life and be successful and 
never have to learn a single word of English. Obviously, that's not the case in the majority of the country. I started learning English when I was seven years old. And then, so when I got to New Jersey, my English was good, you know, but other people started to notice like little tidbits in my accent, or maybe if I didn't know certain words, or other people started to um, sort of remind me that I was different. They would ask me more questions about my culture. Where are you from? Exactly, where are you from? And I, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt, right? They're just, it's mostly curiosity. But then they throw out words like exotic. And then they throw out words like, oh, your skin complexion is so nice. Uh, I'm sure you never get sunburns. Uh, <laughs> or, you know, um, and if you're doing well in some sort of regard, they start to isolate the characteristics about you that they, they try to find some sort of explanation to why you are the way you are. And I think one of the biggest things for me was senior year of high school, there was a production of West Side Story. Oh. By the way, do you know West Side Story? Everybody knows West Side yes. Story. But my gosh, you know, Maria being Latina and Tony being um, a white American. And, and I was poised to be Tony. And Maria, the person who was, you know, going to get that role was white. Oh. And I was told that there was some sort of like a backroom debate between teachers and, you know, the adults who were putting on the entire production of here's AJ. He's got the best voice. He's probably the best actor. He's the best person for the role. But then I would have people pushing back. Hold on a second, but he's Latino. And I'm happy that I didn't hear about that when I was in high school. That was just one of those moments that make you realize that there are things that you don't even know about that, you know, people are talking about or times when, you know, opportunity may not have been given to you because of one thing or another. I ended up, you ended up getting the role and, and performing. Yes, I got the role. I got the role and the show was great. <laughs> not because of me, because it was just, you know, it was a great cast and everything. Um, but, you know, it was one of those moments where it's like, you know, what could have been? And I can't believe that was even a conversation. I mean, I, in a way, I sort of understand it, but it, it definitely would have been a different conversation in today's world, right? In today's world, I think that, you know, depending on where you live, that could have been something so much more serious. It, you know, today it could have been something as big as a, a lawsuit, even, you know? Um, I'm not saying that I would never have, but what I'm saying is that, you know, I'm I'm thankful that we're living in a culture now where the majority of the population is so accepting of the rich diversity of our country that I think, you know, what we saw with last summer with George Floyd, the reason why Black Lives Matter really propagated at that point was because white people started to care. And now it's the same case that if some of the stuff happens that would have been small then are now super big now because white people care. And, you know, there have been instances like that throughout my both childhood and also professional career where you see these small little like microaggressions, right? God, I hate that word. I hate that word, but I can't figure out any other word to describe it, you know? Well, can you, can you give me an example of, of a thing? So when I was at NBC Universal, my first job out of college, um, I was working at 30 Rock in New York and I was doing very well. And um, somebody had said that, wow, you're so talented. You should go work at Univision. And I think to them, <laughs> it was like a compliment. Uh, but to me, like it, I had enough education. I had, I had enough knowledge of 
what some of the sort of stuff sort of means is because they want to sort of put you in a box, right? Yeah. And, the, you know, there was always like little random stuff like that. But listen, you know, I never let any of that sort of small stuff get to me. Mm-hmm. I recognize it. I see it. I recognize it. I put it to the side and I move on. I kind of want to prove them wrong and allow them to sort of shift. Mm-hmm. And I think that's much more impactful. Actually, it's something, of course, you know, comes up in every single conversation that I have on my podcast is the race and ethnicity because it's so prevalent in American society. And uh, as somebody who did not grow up here, I came here uh, for graduate school. So I went to college in Russia and I grew up in a mostly ethnically homogenous society, more or less, you know, everybody's kind of white-ish. And if anything, you know, I'm of Jewish descent, so Actually, my father was second-class citizen in Soviet Union. Um, so that is always kind of in my background there. But now coming here, I'm white, obviously, or white passing. And so to me, the whole race thing and ethnicity and the way it plays plays into a lot of the cultural things, and specifically that example, I think what you brought up about your high school play is just fascinating to me as somebody like... That would never, obviously, for for obvious reasons, that would never happen in a Russian school. And it's something that I know for a fact a lot of people abroad, and I know that people listen to this podcast who are thinking about coming here. And that's why I want to, you know, zoom in on on this a little bit more. Um, it's It's a reality that is not familiar to anybody outside the United States. And again, forgive me if I am if I'm clueless asking this, but looking at the original script, right, of the play, the boy is white, the girl is Latina. I mean, there were several ways of solving this. I mean, adjusting the script. Did they adjust? Did the teachers adjust the script? Flip the stories? Oh, no, no, we didn't. Yeah, no, no. It was, we did the play just as it was written. Yeah, nothing changed. Because it is... There's also this conversation of, you know, representation in the media, especially even in the last couple of years, you know, actors being, you know, quitting shows where they are playing actors, they're playing roles that don't fit their ethnicity, like especially in voice actors or movies being forced to recast for for certain ethnicity. And it was especially heightened in the last six months. In the last six months, that's when they started to look at not only what's going on in front of the camera, but they started to see, hold on a second, the decision makers. And so they started to figure out, you know, they need to create more diversity and more opportunity uh, for people uh, behind the camera that are making, calling a lot of the shots. So you started to see a lot more people of color um, uh, starting to get promoted um, at these media conglomerates and production companies and uh, similar types of organizations. It was, it's, it, there's been a big, massive shift. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. I think it's, it's not just about creating opportunity as much as it is about diversity of thought. And I think I've gotten hit about that phrase a lot, by the way. Like, you know, I I remember one guy calling me out saying like, oh, diversity of thought, that's some corporate BS, right? And I said that, "Mm, yes and no. Like diversity of thought, it's not meant to displace 
creating opportunities for people of color. It's meant to say that we need people from different types of backgrounds to make some of these decisions because there are certain experiences, there are certain things that, you know, a a white guy from Missouri just can't answer when he's trying to put on programming for uh, Latinos in South Florida, right? And yeah, this just wouldn't occur to him. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's nothing against that guy. And that's nothing against, you know, the audience that he's trying to program for. But sometimes when you're a brand and you start to see that the population, that the demographics are shifting in such a rapid way. I mean, the majority of, you know, these Gen Z um, uh, uh, folks that are coming up, uh, you know, they're super, super diverse, right? They're Hispanics. Mm-hmm. Um, you start to see preschool programming that is in Spanglish. Like those are the biggest, biggest shows there. And it's because they clearly see a through line that the population is shifting and it's going to be much more, much more diverse in the future. And so it's important that you create staffs to recognize that shift and understand their experience so that you know, um, they could you know, get the eyeballs, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, it's a business decision, um, I think, at the end of the day. And if it, if, it, if it takes a business decision to create opportunity, then so be it, right? Yeah. You know, m- money talks, right? Money talks. And I think it's, the, it's a very strong argument against, you know, the opposition on, you know, quote unquote, right to diversity, uh, creating diversity is it's not a real meritocracy. Forget about like question mark around that word by default. <laughs> you know, who gets, you know, the opportunities. But um, but what you were explaining about how it is really a business concern and being able to connect with your audience, with your client, with your very diverse population is through creating the content. And then how would a person know what, people care about if they haven't come from that. And by the way, and also having a diverse staff also prevents the company from having some major, major issues. And I'll give you a specific example of that. So I used to be a, a, um, a development exec and I remember going through a cut of a show. And in that cut of the show, I noticed something that could come off as racist. And everybody else that was reviewing the cut, it was a rough cut. No one caught it. And then I started to think to myself, why didn't anyone on the editing staff, why didn't any of the producers, everyone saw this episode, no one caught it. And so I finally caught it. Um, and I think it took somebody with experience that understands like these, again, these microaggressional tones and stuff like that, that when you have a diverse staff, you'll catch stuff like that. And ultimately, you know, that also helps the company. Imagine if that had aired. I can't say exactly what it was, but I can't imagine if it had aired, people, you know, heads would have been rolled. Really? It was that offensive? Yeah. Oh, wow. It, it was, I think people of color would have pointed it out. There would have been a firestorm on Reddit. There would have been like, you know, it. W- I mean, they would have... Um, pick themselves back up. But when I talk about money, you know, I, I don't, I don't mean that any like any lawsuits are going to come about, but rather, you know, it's just dropping the episode and any lost advertising deals, any possible lost advertisers, like uh, they're, uh, you know, just taking the cut back to the edit room and in order to re-upload. And it's just a whole mess of things that would have happened. But my realization was, is that, you know, I started to look at everybody behind the camera that actually let this cut pass. And it's possible that because we hadn't had enough diversity there, no one caught it. Well, it's, it's exciting times that we're living in that 
Things are indeed changing. They're absolutely changing. Uh, again, I'm optimistic. I'm seeing so many of my um, friends and people who are respected colleagues in the industry that are finding the right fits and finally getting recognized for their achievements. And, you know, all it's just I'm seeing progress. I am. I am super hopeful. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, let's go. Let's now back up a little bit. You went on to college. What was your what was your story then? Yeah. So I went to Rutgers. And this is also another peg in that um, sort of opening my world to the diversity that's out there. So I went from like, a, you know, very homogeneously Latino Miami <laughs> to a very white South Jersey to then when I went to Rutgers, which is the State University of New Jersey, um, I started to see so many different shades of people that I was like, oh, my gosh. This is crazy. I was doing a few internships and that's when I sort of decided that, you know, media was a route that I was going to go in. And um, I landed a great coordinator position at NBC Universal TV distribution. Um, and we were doing a lot of first run syndicated programming like Maury and Jerry Springer and Steve Wilkos and Access Hollywood and just all this stuff. And I was just super, super excited about that job. Um, I'm even more grateful for the people who believed in me um, to trust a kid, you know, just out of college to take on this role. Um, and this is back in like the 07, 08 financial crisis when, you know, that was the last time that everything in media was sort of collapsing due to the economy. And, um, you know, that recession actually brought more opportunity to me because, you know, in their eyes, like here's an eager kid who's willing to take on every job imaginable. And so they just dumped three or four departments on me. And I was working my tail off, but I was having fun doing it because I had some great, great people that were um, just super supportive of me. And I know, I and, and by the way, I know that probably a piece of that decision-making into whether or not to bring me on board probably had to do with diversifying their own ranks. I know that. And everybody should know that too. You know, whenever you're applying to something, there's a reason why they have that ethnicity checkbox there. It is a very tricky, another shocker when you come here from outside. And I'm sure you're used to it because you've been, you know, filling out those forms always your whole life. What do you feel when you fill out that box? What do you think? That is a good question. And there's always, you're absolutely right. Like there's, Whenever I get to that box for a split second, you pause, right? Because it's one of those times where you're reminded that you're different, right? Mm -hmm. um, wow. How do I feel when I get to that point? Yes, I pause for a split second and then I don't give it as much thought and then I just check it off and I move on. And I figure that, you know, this is for just to make sure that they have data points and I know, let me put it this way. Because I've clicked that box, I've probably gotten with every qualification that they could have asked for. I know that I'm probably going to get to the final round of, say, an interview. I know that I'm going to get to the final round. I, and that, that that's not to say that, um, that's not to sound like um, egotistical or anything. I just, I know that if I apply to something, I have every qualification met. Otherwise, I'm not going to, like, apply for it. But I know that if I put in Latino, there is not a lot of people out there who are Latino that can do a lot of stuff here. Is it a guarantee that I'll get the job? Never, ever, ever. But I know the way the system works. And I know that that recruiter has to at least take a call with me because she needs to show other people that, yes, I did consider people of color. And that's just the truth of the matter. And, you know, there was a there was a time between 2016 and 2017 where 
I was unemployed. And I can't tell you how many interviews I got to the 10 yard line on, you know, I've gotten, you know, either whether it's sitting down with a famous celebrity in their green room talking about this great job at their company, which I'm like 100% fully qualified. I got into that same scenario probably a little over a dozen times where I think I'm going to get this job and I didn't get it for whatever reason. And you can't go into the rabbit hole of, you know, thinking, why didn't you get it? But I at least know why I got to that point. And I bet any money that it was because I checked off the fact that I was Latino so that they can say that they, you know, considered a person of color for the role. And, you know, to all the listeners listening to this podcast, I think some might be like thinking, oh, you know, this guy, you know, what's he talking about? But that's just, I, I, I know the way it works. Like, you know, when I was at NBC Universal, I was responsible at, at, in one of my roles, I had been responsible of identifying people who were um, people of color, um, LGBTQ uh, plus community, just being able to recognize the diversity both in front of and behind the camera. And I know that it's a data game for these major media companies. Now, is not as much of a data game as much as it is um, a reckoning and a and a, a true understanding of that this is indeed the right thing to do um, to preserve the core messaging of the company and where we're looking to go in the future. I appreciate you um, highlighting the difference of of thinking how it used to be. You know, just checking off a you know diversity requirement for whatever IPO or something or investors coming in and uh, whatever it is. And now really understanding um, the actual value of that. I think that's the big, the big progress there. <laughs> and I give credit to like diversity organizations and media that have really pushed for it. I'll give you an example. So when the Comcast NBC Universal um, acquisition from General Electric happened, one of the ways that that was allowed to go through was um, being able to provide data on uh, diversity, you know, being able to commit themselves to um, increasing diversity within the ranks and also, you know, in front of the camera, behind the camera. And so... And that provided for the possibility of a merger. It was, no, it, it, it wasn't a completely thing that was hinging on it, but it was just... It was just one other thing that they were just committing to. So, by the way, this is public knowledge. You can pull it up on Google uh, or anything. Um, so I, I don't think I'm revealing anything here. But it also creates a problem because, you know, how do you get proper data like that? You know, I, you can't just roll up into one of your production companies or one of your shows and it's like, hey, are you gay? Hey, are you, um, are you, uh, you know, Latino? Are you black? Are you this? You know, you can't do that. <laughs> it all has to be self-reported, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, they did the, the best that they could. But Pretty much that's what happens. Yeah, exactly. It all has to be self-reported. You can't just, you know, um, look at it on the surface level and say like, see, I'm diverse. Um, no, but, um, you know, I, I think some of these companies, that was a stepping stone in sort of recognizing, you know, we need some sort of data points to recognize the progress that we're making. But like I said earlier, you know, the conversation now has shifted from, see, we've got it to more of like, okay, now we understand why we needed it to begin with and we're on board. I keep thinking about how, about that checkbox and, and, it's it's interesting how you you told me about this thing how you know that with your qualifications you will get further right away just because 
there's a smaller pool of Latinas with that kind of qualifications. And so you know that that allows you to move a few steps ahead as an immigrant. I, and I've had this conversation with others, my last name is Capustina, which is clearly foreign. I mean, I don't know. People have told me it sounds Italian. I don't know. Uh, it's a very Russian last name. It actually means cabbage in Russian. Oh. Having come here, uh, I actually married an American guy and I didn't want to give up my name. I just, I like my name. This is me. I also, you know, I've worked in the industry a little bit. So I, it would be a bit of a jarring thing for my community if I did change my name. But I have had people tell me, hey, if you changed your name, you'd get more opportunities. People are passing on your resume because of your name. Unfortunately, that's true. And yeah. the funny thing is that my husband's name is Barry, which actually is butchered Baranoff, which his grandfather changed. His his great-grandfather was uh, a Russian Jew who came here early 20th century. And he was Baranoff, so he changed the name to Barry for the same reason. It's a common story. Here's something that binds us, you know, recent immigrants and and older immigrants, you know, with uh, uh, with white people. Like, you know, so many people have changed their last name because they wanted to assimilate. Um, the difference here is that, you know, there have been studies that have been done that, you know, with your resume example, where they saw how two different resumes with different names, everything matched down the line, every qualification, everything matched. The only difference was a name. And the more American white sounding name made it to the next round while the other name that, you know, could have been, you know, in the scenario that I'm thinking about was, you know, a, uh, a name that is common in the black community didn't make it forward. And so, you know, by the way, and that's a consideration too with parents these days, that's a consideration I made when naming my two sons. I kid you not. I thought about the resume. I thought about what's an English and Spanish sounding name that Americans, that white people won't botch. Or like there's no, there's no mispronouncing that name. Yet also my Spanish relatives can also be accepting of it because it's not too white sounding. It's still like, you know, gives credence to our culture. But I also thought about, I want to make sure that it's a name where if we haven't made enough progress, you know, what's a, what's a strong name that is not going to stop them from, you know, progress. And so that was absolutely a consideration when uh, naming my two sons. And it's something that I think immigrants think about all the time, especially first generation immigrants. You know, we, we're in this interesting place where we want to honor our culture, but at the same time, we know that there is this we have to assimilate more. Um, and so we're always on this, playing this balancing act. We're always on this tightrope and making sure that we set up our kids for success. It's interesting. When you said the word assimilate, I, I could sense some tension there. It's a tough word. Why, why so? In what sense? Assimilation, I think you could see it in a number of different lights. Like to some people, I think assimilation is giving up one's culture. Other people, it's, it's more of like, no, just, I'm just saying that bring more Americanism, like just the way we do things. Don't give up what you're doing, but just bring more of that into what you're doing. And I just, I cringe at that word a little bit because it's too often sort of misconstrued as just giving up one to have the other. And that's generally the case with our world right now. Like everything is so black and white. We can't have one thing and not have the other. And so I think that, 
you know, we, we do have to approach things with balance more these days. We have to live in this gray area because that's, that's what our culture is. But, you know, for me, it's, it's about having a little bit of both. It's about, it's, it's being proud of one's culture. And it's about, you know, you know, setting the dinner table with every Spanish dish you, you can imagine, but also having a burger and a hot dog on the table as well, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, that's a that's a good, good segue. I wanted to ask you about your family and how your family dealt with that balance, and how did your parents? What did? How did they approach creating the balance for you as kids? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So my parents were just learning English when they just got to this country, and I, I got to give them a ton of credit because. Um, you know, for every loss of words that they have today, like they're just, you know, a world away from um, it all. It's just, I'm, I'm just super, super impressed with them. And the way that they raised us growing up is that they always talk Spanish in the house. Always. That was their rule. You know, we talk Spanish and then you respond to us in Spanish because you're getting enough of the English out in school and, you know, with your friends and such. And so it worked with me, you know, my, I'm still fluent in Spanish. And I'm super appreciative of everything. Um, and that's something that, you know, you think about it with every passing generation, with every, you know, um, you may lose a little bit of that culture, right? Even with my own kids, I start to think about, you know, do you speak Spanish with them all the time? Or does that confuse them? That's what you kind of have to do. And even that might not do it. Yeah. And so what we do, what my wife and I do is we send our, well, before COVID, we sent our kid to a bilingual daycare. So he was basically learning Spanglish. He says things like agua instead of water, um, mas instead of more. And um, yeah, we, we, we uh, and that was super helpful to us. I think that there's something that my parents instilled in all of us. It, it's it's something that is very much common with first generation um, children, and it's the desire for progress. It's an adventuristic spirit. We did this so that you can go miles from it, and that's the pressure—not pressure. I'm sorry, that's the wrong word. That's something that I carry with me every single day. You know, if these guys did everything that they did and slept in an attic of a gas station and, you know, fought hunger and uh, fought all these different problems that are real, real problems, then I have to show them that that fight was worthwhile. And for me, it's about continuing to push every single day and not taking anything for granted. So like, you know, if I, you know, landed a promotion, I have to live up to that promotion and then some. If I, you know, see this opportunity to get better education, I'm not going to just leave it there. I'm going to go get it. You know, if I see a job opportunity that takes me out of my comfort zone and takes me to another state where I don't know anybody or another country where I don't know anybody, I'm going to take it because, you know, we know that opportunity can come from so many different places and there's no such thing as comfort um, to immigrant families because we know that any assembly of comfort can be taken away at a moment's notice. And we're not going to make progress unless we shake things up. And so, you know, my three siblings, all three of us have our MBAs. And the reason we sought higher education was because we felt our parents not, they weren't pressuring us. It wasn't that. They never told us to do any of that. It's just that we just looked at them and, and we knew that we wanted something better. We knew that deep down inside, they were pushing us, pushing us, pushing us without even saying it 
that you can do so much better than me because of everything that you've been afforded. Do not squander it. Push, push, push. Clearly, in the way you're describing it is a is an inspiring um, message. I can see, though, and I've had conversations with people where that can um, kind of turn the other way and maybe suppress the person's own initiative in terms of seeking out what they actually want to do or finding their own path or being under so much pressure to deliver to the point where that crushes them. They tend to shut down because they feel that weight. Yeah. Um, have you ever experienced any of those uh, negatives? Um, I can't say I have because my, my parents are great in that they never told me to do one thing or another. I know that there's a lot of immigrant parents that they'll say like, go be a doctor, go be a lawyer, go do one of these things that we know everybody makes money of. Well, I've never met a happy lawyer. <laughs> so, um, me neither. And I, and I used to be one. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I was actually poised to go to law school, oh. ready to sign on the dotted line. And that's when NBC Universal came around and I got the job and it took, you know, some conversations with my own parents. My parents knew that you just need to double down on what you're good at, double down on what you're passionate about. And, you know, they've only ever lightly said that, oh, it'd be great that if you were a lawyer or something like that. They had raised us in a way that we had a good head on our shoulders. So as long as, you know, you found something that you're really passionate about, okay, then put your all into it. It is a big decision to turn something like that down. Yeah. You know, my parents are going to kill me for giving this story, but I think I'll do you one better. I failed my first semester of my freshman year of college. I failed. Huh. I completely took it for granted. That was the moment where my parents were so, so disappointed in me that I never made a mistake like that again. And I graduated on time with great grades and everything. But like, it takes a moment like that to for somebody to sort of shake their head and say, you know, you're better than this. We didn't go through everything that we did for you to do this. And I am so thankful for that moment because everything from there on was sky's the limit. And my parents saw that in the next, you know, three years um, that I was going through college. And so because when I told them that I'm not going to go to law school, and I gave all my reasoning. They were cool as a cucumber. Do you remember the specific conversation that parents had with you? The specific conversation probably had, I don't remember everything, um, but I remember that there were tears for sure. I don't think a lot of words had to be exchanged. You sort of just see, you know, your mother's eyes and one look at her face and you know she's replaying everything that she had invested into taking you to a certain point. And you remember your father's words when he said that easy part was getting in the hard part is staying um and that's something that he told me when they were dropping me off in my college dorm and i let them down that first semester i let them down but then when they saw the turnaround they were happy what was your thinking going into law school i was going to law school because i thought it was a thing to do just getting a good degree and then figuring it out kind of thing yeah it was like get it get the degree and figure it out all lawyers make money right lawyers are well respected yada yada and then you know what it took it took internships and i i you know internships are so so crucially important do not get higher education unless you've actually worked in the field even as an assistant and i think that you really really need to know what it is before investing the money because law school is expensive and so what it did for me it was um i i had to the reason why i deferred and then later 
didn't go was because a few things. Um, when I was in college, I did several internships, and one of them was at the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union in New Jersey. And I was brought on to do um, processing inbound um, uh, letters um, and inquiries about their legal cases that they wanted the ACLU to take a look at. It's a great, great job. And I worked with such wonderful people. And then while I was in that job, I found out that they needed, they wanted to do a documentary about um, reinstating um, sorry, um, uh, about reinstating voting rights for um, ex-felons. And so at that point, I had switched my major to journalism and media studies. And I loved producing that, docu that documentary for them. I volunteered myself for it. And it came out so great. And I had so much fun doing that. I had so much fun, like just telling that story. And from there, I went on to work for the United Nations. And I spent time in Madrid, Spain, documenting refugees coming from the Ivory Coast that were looking to, uh, they were seeking asylum in the Spanish Canary Islands. That right there, you know, there was a moment that, uh, that was a summer right after I graduated college. And the plan was that I was gonna go to law school as soon as I returned. I was already in and ready to go. And then finally, somebody, God rest his soul, but he was the station manager at one of the big news organizations in Madrid. And when he watched it, he said, what are you doing when you're getting back to the States? And I said, I'm going to go to law school. And then he said that, why? I feel like you found your calling. And it took that conversation to make me realize that here was something that I was doing that I volunteered myself for that I never got paid for, but I had so much fun doing it. And when you find something like that, you hold on to it. And just, you know, a month or two later, I got that job at NBC Universal. And then I'm so thankful that I didn't go to law school because while I was at NBC Universal, I found out that General Electric, who owned NBC Universal at the time, had a tuition reimbursement program that I qualified for. So I said, heck, let me go get my MBA. Mm -hmm. I got super, super lucky. Media companies are not doing it to the extent that they did it then. You're interesting and interested in social reform and all these things, but you don't have to get a law degree to do that sort of thing. You can, there are a multitude of avenues to, to contribute. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah, that's a, that's a great and inspiring story. Thank you for sharing. So you started working for NBC Universal. And what were you doing there? So when I first got there out of college, I was basically an assistant and department coordinator. And I was working across programming and development and business affairs and marketing and communications and affiliate relations. I, you know, again, it was back 07, 08 crisis where they saw an eager kid that was willing to take on a lot. And so they gave me a lot. Um, and that was a great rewarding experience for me. Um, two years into that gig, I was recommended for a post over at the Sci-Fi Network. And I was working in the president's office uh, in New York. And that was a great experience for me because I just met so many high level executives that took an interest in me and uh, gave me a lot of guidance. And also um, uh, those are the years between my first and second job at NBC Universal where I got my MBA done. Um, in two years. It was also a very, very crazy time for me. You get done to work at like 5.30, you immediately hop into the subway, go two stops away and go to business school. And then you're there until probably 10, 10.30 at night. Um, sometimes you have to stay later to go get some assignments done. And then, you know, my girlfriend, now wife at the time, 
you know, sometimes they didn't see me <laughs> because, you know, work, school, work, school, work, school. I was trying to get it done in two years. From there, I got promoted and I became a junior development executive and they relocated me out to Los Angeles. And I was working in Universal City and um, it was both Sci-Fi and USA Network. And I got to do dozens and dozens and dozens of shows and development and got to oversee several shows that hit the air. A really rewarding time for me because I got to uh, be exposed to so many different facets of, um, of the medium production business. And um, I learned a lot about human nature and what makes people tick. So that was a very creative position. Before before we jump further, I just realized that we're kind of talking, you know, the 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 shop talk and some people won't know what development at a studio means. So what exactly did you do? Just quickly so that people know. Yeah. So when you're working on um, the network side or as we call the buyer, mm -hmm. you're basically fielding all the incoming stuff that's coming in from outside talent agencies and production companies and studios. And you're seeing all these materials come in and you're basically, you know, seeing what you're actually going to put your development budget into. You're a buyer, right? People come to you and pitch shows. Yeah. Or pitch talent or pitch a number of different ideas. And then we're basically the gatekeepers. We decide what we want to develop and what we don't want to develop. We have a certain amount of development budget allocated to us every, um, every year, every quarter where, you know, and we have a network mandate where we know who our audience is and how we need to reach them. And so I did both, you know, um, evaluating those outside projects that were coming in, but also doing some internal development. So like, we'll come up with a creative idea that we know works for us. And then we give it to a trusted producer that we know that they can execute on it. I'm sure you're aware of the um, tension that uh, occurs uh, a lot of times between the between the shows and the complaints that you know the shows have um, towards the networks and usually complaining about the development people who are giving notes. So how did you how did you handle that? That is such a great question. The notes process. Um, Creativity is so subjective. When I was a development executive, I was lucky that I had a lot of great bosses that I took after and they bestowed on me different thoughts on how to actually give notes that won't send producers into a tailspin. When you give notes, you have to give it in a very, very pensive and thoughtful way. And they have to be actionable. You know, you can't give vague notes like, I don't like this. That's not a note. That's a personal, that's a personal feeling that you have. No, it's, you know, hey, can we consider doing XYZ? Because I feel that XYZ might not lend itself to the XYZ storyline. So like very thoughtful ways like that are the ways that you build that trust with the producer and going over cuts like multiple times over, multiple times over, you know? They spend so many hours getting a rough cut into great shape. You owe them even more time making sure that they're not spinning their wheels on the next cut of that show. And I think that's why I personally had a great relationship with all the producers. I'm sure that there may have been a moment or two where they're just like, what's this kid talking about? Um, I try to limit those. Uh, there'll always be some sort of tension. It's, it's limiting how much tension there ever is. And it's also a matter of like connecting with producers. So like I spent a lot of time on set, a lot of time. A lot of network executives do not do that. They typically like to stay in their, 
I think producers say like in their ivory tower and just give notes and then just, you know, call it a day at five o'clock, right? And just do their random drinks with uh, talent agents and producers and stuff like that. You know, I did my fair share, but it was really, you know, building that trust with them required being in the trenches with them. And so with every show that I was on, I was there. I was there at least throughout the entire first season. That way they saw that I was there to support them. Um, that way they saw that, you know, before that rough cut came through, um, we were in alignment on what we knew this was going to be. And I was also very protective of them too. That was my burden. That's my job. My job is to make sure that we get us to the goal line and this thing looks as great as possible, but I'm not going to bother you with every small minuscule thing out there. No, too many people do that. Part of our job as a development executive is to be that barrier to make sure that our goals are accomplished in a timely and you know, reasonable manner and that everyone's happy with the outcome. And I actually wanted to ask you, like, why, why did you choose the, the corporate path? Um, I love being on the ground and doing like news stories. I thought I was going to go into journalism because that was my major ultimately. I think it was business school that flipped the switch for me. Um, not that I won't all, you know, that I won't ever go back into, um, uh, you know, switch functions. But I think at the time, you know, business strategy and things like that, like really interested me and in that, and I did really well in business school. And that's what made me realize that, okay, this is what I should be doing. Ironically, I got done business school and then I went into a creative function on the corporate side. And, but, and multiple people told me like, why are you doing that? You need to be doing like marketing or business development or something like that. And I should, probably should have listened to them because ultimately, you know, after eight years being at NBC, you know, four years being in just a creative function, um, I decided to hang my hat up and say that like, I don't want to do development anymore. Just round after round after round. I'm just like, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I'm glad that I had the experience, but ultimately, you know, I started to listen to what I'm really good at. Eventually that you got tired of that, uh, or what was it? What was the moment that you felt like that's, that's enough? Yeah. In my, in my final year, um, I, I, I started to realize that this wasn't what I was meant to do. It didn't excite me as much. And I think that the company knew too. Um, there was a massive round of layoffs in 2016 and I was part of it. And there was like a sense of relief that came over me when it happened because I'm just like, you know, I had been oscillating between, you know, what to do next. And that sort of helped me force my hand and reorient, my, reorient myself into what I should be doing which was business development, which was marketing, which is building businesses from the ground up. Close Contact said that, hey, this company Rooster Teeth is looking for somebody like you um, to do general business development. It's basically you need to find what makes money. And I immediately honed in on something that Rooster Teeth was doing so spectacularly well, which was its podcast. Like it's a very multifaceted company. It does so many different things. And I just I was like, wow, like the sky is the limit with these guys. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah. Um, so what Rooster Teeth is, it's a, just a multi-fledged entertainment studio. I think of us as a little bit of a mini Disney of sorts in that we have, you know, we're one of the earliest players in YouTube. We've been around for about 17 years. We have several owned and operated brands. Um, those operated, owned and operated brands create live action series, films, documentaries, podcasts. Um, we have a huge animation studio that does dozens of shows. Um, several of them have been hits. We do one of the biggest Western produced anime series ever made called Ruby, 
Um, we're going into our second season of a big show called Gen Lock starring Michael B. Jordan, David Tennant, and a number of others that's going to be on HBO Max. It's a sort of mini powerhouse that was born out of Austin that has studios both in Austin and also Los Angeles. Today, we have about 45 million fans worldwide. Um, that just love everything that we do in gaming, animation, and comedy. And podcasting is that thing that sort of ties together that community. You know, the community loves everything we do for, for animation, everything we put on our YouTube channels. They feel like they belong with our company. They feel like they have a stake in everything that they do. And so our podcast is a great point where they get to hear directly from all of our talent. We've been podcasting for a little over 12 years now, and we actually created the framework for what a video and audio podcast looks like. The guy who hired me was basically thinking about, well, how do we blow this out? And so, you know, he had created um, the podcast network, and then I came in and sort of threw kerosene on it, bringing in partners who created content that Rooster Teeth liked, right? Other creators that did stuff in our same tone and style, it was a little rock and roll in nature. And we were able to help them build up their businesses and bring in revenue and expand into merch and expand into all these different things. And so the Roost Podcast Network was born. And that's essentially what I head up today. And, you know, the podcast network is in great shape. It has about 75 shows, a mix of owned and operated stuff and also partner shows. So it's a lot of collaboration. And so I was just, again, I was like, as you were telling me about, I was just fascinated how uh, big and diverse is the entertainment universe and how many different worlds are out there. And, and And I hate to... But I, I, I will ask it, and I, I trust you to not take it wrong. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's usually like wide boys thing, or am I wrong? So, okay, so you are, you are partially right. And let me explain that. Okay, so it's gaming, lifestyle, entertainment, right? And it's basically all the entertainment that your prototypical, even casual gamer watches when they put the controller down. Like they like to watch, you know, they're nerds, you know, they like to watch Game of Thrones and Josh Whedon stuff and a whole bunch of other stuff, right? Yes, our audience is a little bit more male skewing and it's historically been, uh, I don't actually have data to back this up, but it's probably... Um, probably more appealing um, to, you know, white audiences historically. But I will say that in the last several years, um, we have made such a concerted effort to diversify not only our cast, but diversify, um, uh, well, first starting with diversifying our cast, both, um, and that means, you know, diversifying what's in front of the screen and also behind the screen to make sure that our content appeals to diverse audiences as well. And so, you know, we brought on talent, we've made sure that we took a strong stance when, you know, everything that was happening last summer with uh, with uh, George Floyd and all the conversations that were taking place, the co- company took a super, super strong stance in that, you know, whatever you may have, um, you know, a, a lot of places also came under scrutiny. And we took, we basically went out there and said that, you know, the people who belong in our community are the people that um, have the same values as we do now, which is, you know, strength and diversity. Um, which is, you know, respect for one another um, and things along those lines. And so and it's very interesting that you being an entertainment company made a point of taking that stance and out of Texas. I think that's yeah. <laughs> very valuable. I'm talking to you and I'm realizing how what you were saying, like people who belong to our community, that forces people who enjoy 
great content that you're creating question themselves and ask themselves like what they are and why people who are creating this great stuff making a point of setting that kind of criteria yeah and did you get any backlash we we definitely got backlash <laughs> we certainly listen to everything that's going on out there but we also try to um there's also a lot of internet trolls right there's a lot of people that want to see the demise of a company there's a lot of people that you know think that oh these are liberal hollywood elites um oh these are people out of austin yeah um and so you just have to let it go and move on and we we know we want to be on the right side of history we're still going we're still moving forward we're going to continue to hire diverse talent we're going to continue to you know try to widen um our focus uh because you know the world is changing around us and in order for a media company to survive we need to make sure that we're you know attracting you know gen z much more diverse audiences um you know you have to adapt um or die and you know sometimes that takes taking a very brutal and honest look at yourself i'm telling you personally from the heart there's not a lot of companies out there that will take a short term hit like this because the long term is so meaningful to that regard and i can see how emotional that is for you and i want to ask you besides the backlash on twitter or wherever which is you know everybody rides those waves but uh was there any drop in subscriptions or uh viewership i don't know what i will say is that but it wasn't as significant to to for you to know you know how it is like with cancel culture you know some people are just like they write you off because they don't agree with your politics or something like that even though we didn't think any of what had been said is political you know we're taking like basic decency is political these days which is insane to me we took a stance and i um would have to go back and see if like what kind of impact it had data wise but i will say that the more meaningful impact is which can't be measured is the credibility that we built when you're solidifying that relationship with the right people that understand why we did a certain thing you know that word starts to get out from there and they'll talk to their friends and they'll say like yes this is a safe space this is the restricted community that i know do you mean audiences or do you mean creatives both you know hopefully we start to attract uh, more of the um uh, audience that sort of at, uh, that believes in those same values i do want to ask you as the head of uh, podcast network how does it work? It's kind of like a new a whole new world podcast networks. You know, because again, I'm in the entertainment and there is, you know, TV networks, there's kind of an existing structure. Okay, there's network TV, there's cable, and there's like a, an evolving field, but still it's it's kind of more structured and it has its rules and regulations and it knows how it operates there are new kinds of deals that come up there's new player that comes up but they come up in an existing field now podcasting is coming up as sort of part of that field but it it occurred as its own thing and now it's kind of merging a little bit and i guess your uh your company is part of that merging process and so can you tell me a little bit about how you think of of your of your network? Yeah. Uh it's a great question. Um so so while Rooster Teeth has been in podcasting for 12 years, um the Roost has been around for about 5 years. And the way that we think about a podcast network is well one 
you know, podcasting in general is uh, hasn't matured yet. It only started to really find momentum in the last two years where everybody's like, oh, my God, I got to get a podcast, you know. And you saw all these ad tech hosting platforms and hosting and monetization platforms. You see all these networks popping up. You see more of these indie companies getting bought up by bigger companies. A lot of merging acquisition happening, a lot of money being thrown around. And especially on the distributor space, you know, you see everybody's has eyes on, you know, what's Spotify doing, what's Apple doing, what's these guys that have sort of, you know, take up the lion's share of where people go to actually consume platforms. And so I think that we sort of have to wait and see what happens across the landscape because again, there's every most podcasting companies are are in what I call growth stage, meaning that they're raising capital or they have money to blow and they're looking to consolidate a certain sector because they want to be completely vertical or horizontally aligned as a company, whether they're buying up indie, you know, creator studios that are been, you know, have sizable audiences, or they're buying the hosting platforms so that they can create the the pipes in order to get it out there. Or you could be a major distributor that buys everything, um, uh, you know, soup to nuts, um, and they tend to favor that content from a marketing standpoint. But what I will say is that I think the pandemic definitely exacerbated the amount of people that were jumping into the podcast space, and it put a lot of focus on it because a lot of productions were down, right? And podcasting has a very low barrier to entry for people to do. You need a microphone and, you know, sometimes a mixer, sometimes not, and then, you know, in a hosting platform, boom, you got a podcast. And I think what I love about podcasting is that it's such a democratic medium, you know, for you to sell a show or sell a movie, like you have so many gatekeepers in order to get that content out and distributed. Whereas podcasting, anyone can put it up. Now, can anyone see it? That's the problem. Yeah. I was just going to say, you can put out whatever you want. (laughs) You can put out whatever you want. But the fact that remains is that the competition is so fierce. There are almost 1.4 million podcasts yeah. on Apple or Spotify, right? Yeah. How do you get seen? Most of them are not operational and most of them don't even aim at monetization. But the 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 money pie that was the, the advertising pie, I mean, the pie is growing, is growing itself, but also the bigger players are coming into it. So how do you how do you think about that? It's all about the content, it's all about the quality, and then making sure that that is part of a network or part of somebody who has the right marketing um, pipes to get the word out about that. And so I think that the, I think what's going to happen in this podcasting space is that you're going to continue to see consolidation across the board, obviously, but I think that you're also going to start to see podcasts drop out um, as, you know, a number of things happen as, you know, things on COVID start to ease up and productions open back up and people go back to, you know, what was making the lion's share of money, or they realize that, okay, I'm not making any money on podcast. Why am I doing it to begin with? Or they run out of creative ideas for your podcast. So they just stop doing it. And, um, but you're also starting to see studios use podcasts as IP generators. Um, the problem is it will only be an IP generator if you have the data to back it up because they they essentially want podcasts as a way to like test out this new cool fiction format a proof of concept but a big part of that pitch is showing that hey look i got sixty thousand people an episode to listen to this show 
you should buy it and adapt it into a TV show or film. But how do you get that 60,000? How do you get those numbers? It's so incredibly difficult to do. Um, and so, you know, time will tell. Time will tell if you can build out those sustainable audiences on this medium. And if that as a backdoor IP generator proves itself out to be a great way to try out new things um, and be able to sell the format for other mediums. You've seen places like Wondery do it exceptionally well. But also people have to realize that places like Wondery, places like, you know, iHeartMedia, places like all these other places, they're in growth mode, right? And so for other networks out there, um, you're either in growth mode or you're in profitability mode. You have to show a profit or you have to show that you're growing into something that with an exit strategy. So for companies like a Megaphone, which is a major hosting platform that just sold to Spotify, you know, um, companies like that, they start to see the consolidation happening in the marketplace. And if you're not showing a return, you ha you you know the way the market's going, so you have to sell the company. So you've reached a, you know, a great capacity in the amount of users, so now you have something valuable to sell. And so, but are they profitable, right? I'm not talking about any one particular company, but, you know, I think the next six months to a year are gonna be very telling for the podcast industry of like, you know, who survives, who gets gobbled up, um, uh, and then who has, who is incorporating podcasting as a smaller piece of something bigger. And for the most part, podcasting for most media companies, it's a smaller piece of something bigger. Mm -hmm. And so is that is that what it, you feel it's going to be for Rooster? Yeah, so for us, you know, the podcast network, um, one, it's about incubating and, you know, finding like-minded creators who, sort of hit those same marks that Rooster Teeth did back when we first started. And so we find multiple touch points with them to market their content, but also market ours. You know, we collaborate with other partners because, you know, we're also always trying to find new audience. And so, you know, it the network helps us in supporting our own and operated. And then they join the network because they want to be in in, in most cases, well, in some cases, they see Rooster Teeth as the pinnacle of what they ultimately want to become down the road. And it also affords us the opportunity to take swings. It affords us the opportunity to try out new types of content. And generally when we launch a new audio only podcast, um, you know, it gets quite good consumption. And so that data alone is so great to help fuel our studio business to then go out and sell that podcast as a show on HBO Max, which we're affiliated with. So it's a start to something bigger, but by itself, podcasting is only good to a handful of creators that attract large enough audiences. It's a piece of something bigger. I think it's a very important way to think about stuff that we're creating. So my question to you as a network head, do you only grow stuff internally coming out of your content? Yeah. So for us, like we're always on the prowl for new types of creators that we see a seedling of ourselves in. And so we're on the lookout for content that speaks to our community. And it generally has a sort of anti-pop culture rock and roll feel to it. And it's all comes out of the gaming, animation, and comedy worlds. And comedy is where we're getting the most of it. Comedy is like like everything, right? But if you see it and if it appeals to that 18 to 34 year old crowd that is there's like a sense of optimism to the show but it's also it's it's there's a, a authenticity to the people who um uh, carry the conversation and the conversations never take themselves too seriously either 
And it's usually all about having fun and and it varies across uh, a multitude of genres. You know, if you're the biggest issue that you're facing is marketing and getting audience. And I think that it's important to find networks and find partners that create not the same type of content, but similar type of content that would appeal to their existing base. Because now you know that they have the potential to market your content to their existing audience. So like, you know, if it's something like this show, I think, you know, would be a great fit for like a WNYC or an NPR that generally loves rich content that talks about social justice and talks about the immigrant experience and things like that. Like they, they're gonna, you know, something like this is unlike anything that they currently have but it adds value to their overall portfolio because it helps them hone in on that brand even better that here's a place where you can find content that matters. Here's a place that you hear from underserved communities or from people who generally don't have a voice or from people that want to hear from people that are like them um, telling their unique stories. And so I think the podcast atmosphere is going to largely consolidate to a place where obviously there's money, right? They want to find wherever um, those uh, those sizable audiences are where they can just roll up that audience and have it turns into translate into um, money. But you know, in terms of the networks that are out there, I think it's all going to boil down to brand. You know, and the roost is has been borrowing from the rooster teeth brand in that sense. Whereas, you know, I think a lot of networks out there that try to get everything, they're just like, okay, I got this in entertainment, I got this in lifestyle, I got this in um, true crime, and I got this, and I got this, and I got this, and they try to hit every category. It's you're you're sort of spreading yourself too thin, right? You all you have to really think about what does the consumer expect out of that network, right? Right. What are they generally known for? Yeah. Yeah, and and so besides the the you know content itself fitting as a buyer quote unquote in that situation similar how a studio would be buying uh, acquiring a show what are other requirements that you would be looking at uh with a show would you be looking at certain stats to be in place or a certain longevity be in place or a certain number of episodes like what is it that you would be looking at yeah we actually have a defined set of criteria that I look at. It, there's usually 12 pieces of criteria and I can't go through every single one, but I can give you a few of them. So there needs to be an audience overlap, but I don't want it to be too much of an audience overlap. I want it to be like even within a single percent and I want to see cross affinity. I want to know, I want to see data that shows that the audience of this creator that wants to join my network, um, his audience may be more um, uh, just, uh, more interested in also checking out Rooster Teeth content and that the Rooster Teeth community is also more interested in checking out their content than anybody else out there. And we have systems here where I can sort of measure that. Um, I want to, and that's sort of what establishes fit, right? Because when Rooster Teeth does something, even through its network, our community hears about it, right? I can't go out there and partner with, you know, a creator that has absolutely nothing to do with our brand, absolutely nothing to do. I do try to stretch it as much as possible just to try out new avenues. Like we never even thought about true, doing true crime until I brought in a partner that did true crime. And then I measured it and say like, oh, wow, we have a, you know, there's, there's some crossover here. We should do some true crime stuff ourselves and collaborate. True crime is such a broad uh, has such a broad audience now that I think 
it, anybody can cross pollinate with them kind of it's broad yeah yeah it's all about how you do it who does it and what their tone is when they're doing it right there's a specific way that you talk to certain audiences and then demographics i want to make sure that the demographics ultimately at the end of the day it is a business right and so the demographic the audience demographics have to align with where i'm seeing the most sales demand so that doesn't always necessarily mean numbers right so a podcast can be like huge or it could be small if it's huge great um but if that huge audience the majority of the audience is under 18 years old that's going to be a hard one to sort of pitch back to advertisers that yeah that audience is totally going to buy casper mattresses right no <laughs> um, probably, yeah, not. probably not <laughs> so it's all about where there's demand and that the numbers um that the quality of that audience just regard regardless of the numbers um is interesting to advertisers but also if it's a smaller podcast it's all about is the content there appealing to the rooster teeth audience because whatever marketing that i can put behind it as a network is largely kind of come out of the brands that we own so i'm going to be sort of lending our pipes to help build up their audience through ours but if it's a complete mismatch i can't do anything for them because we're just we don't have the same audience well let me ask you this i just it just popped up in my head when you're saying you know 18 to 34 and you were just saying how ki like a kid's podcast wouldn't be uh, selling Casper mattresses. But with your content, it's kind of overlaps uh, with teenagers. I'm sure you, you get quite a few. And do you perceive them as a buying audience? Yeah, that's, that's a great question because we have animation studio, right? That skews us young. So it's like a sort of a top of funnel thing where our animation studio brings in, you know, younger viewers who then discover our podcast, who then discover the whole Rooster Teeth experience top down. The young audience is eventually going to turn into consumers overall, right? And so if you don't, this goes back to my point about balance, right? Things can be great now, but as your audience ages, they could age out of your content. So for us, it's important to create a healthy balance between super serving our existing community, these people that have been with us for 17 years, people who started watching us when they were just 14 years old, and now they're 31 years old, and they're listening to us on their Apple CarPlay, right on the way to work. Their lifestyles have changed, but they're still very much connected with our content. But for those younger consumers, we want to, you know, they are the ones that help us secure our future. So they're the ones that we're going to need to make sure that we stay relevant, um, that challenge us to mold the creative in a way that speaks to them. Those young consumers that are highly diverse. This goes back to our original point. This is a great way to wrap it up, by the way. Uh, this goes back to diverse audiences and how they are the future of media, right? It's if you do not talk to them, you will be left out in the dust. I don't care who you are. There is a reason why Disney Jr. and Nick Jr., they create Spanglish series because they know that the future is on their doorstep and the future is beautifully diverse. Is there anything else that uh, that we left out that you wanted to bring in from your immigration experience or from your exec experience? I think that the last thing I will say is that I think it's important that people continue to see things as not just black or white, but we're all living in this gray space, not to get into politics, but I, I have no choice. Um, for four years, we have been in this divisive 
world where you're either on one side or you're on the other. And the fact of the matter is that we need to start seeing one another. And in order to see one another, we need to be diverse. That's just it, plain and simple. We're not seeing one another because we don't understand one another. In order to understand one another, we have to be around each other, right? When we see all this criticism of cities and why cities are blue, it's because they're diverse. And so I I pray that, you know, we continue to have these sorts of conversations that we continue to tell these stories because in in these stories like you hear on your podcast when you hear about where people come from there's so much so much connective tissue right and so if you if if you see those similarities just breaks down so many different barriers that's the last thing I'll, i'll say is that as we work to a place to heal um i implore everybody um and your listening audience to um see one another cheers to that yeah cheers Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. I think there was some thought-provoking stuff. Let us know what you think about it. Call us on our Google Voice at 213-973-3813 and tell us what you think and tell us your name-changing stories. Share the show with a friend. Actually send them a link. And remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. Have a happy and safe Thanksgiving. Love you all. Peace.